0: Hey there, Angel Donovan with another episode of Dating Skills Podcast. We're at episode 62. I wanted to give you a quick background on what I'm looking for in guests on a show because I often talk about I want really good quality and good quality advice for you guys that's practical and effective. And it gets at the reality of what dating, sex and relationships really is like. Now, so that means that the three places I look for insights and I'm looking for guests are number one, It's people with a depth of experience. Now think years of practice and life experience in one specific area. That's the ideal I'm looking for there. Number two would be extreme experiences. So that tells us what is possible. When someone has an extreme experience or extreme lifestyle, that tells us like, ah, there's something like you know, there's something a bit different going on in the world um, that I didn't think was possible, but you know, there are some people living like this. A good example of that would be Landon Fox, the male stripper we had on a few episodes back, right? He's got a pretty extreme lifestyle, and it shows you some like pretty hair-raising adventures he's had, which shows you what's possible. Maybe not for everyone, but it shows you what's possible. And the third one is what is proven scientifically. So here I'm talking about academics and peer-reviewed published research. We're talking about people who have studied this area, And they've done research on it, and they've participated in research to actually prove with controlled studies what happens in dating, sex, and relationship scenarios and with our sexuality. So today we're going back to that third one. We're going to the academic world to find out how science is currently looking at sex and sexuality. Specifically, today we get the latest perspective from neuroscience. That's basically the brain. We're looking into the brain and its role in attraction and our sexual preferences and behaviors, so how it helps make decisions, how our brain makes its decisions around these areas. Today's guest is Andrea Kuchewski. She's a cognitive scientist, behavior therapist, and research psychologist. She has written for Scientific American, Discover Magazine, Wired UK, and has a popular neuroscience blog called The Rogue Neuron on Science 2.0. Many of the articles that she's written have looked at the neuroscience of sex and sexuality, which is one of her main interests. So she has a lot to say on this topic. Now, some of today's interview is gonna get a little technical as we get into neurotransmitters and brain structure and other things. But it's well worth the effort to get through it as it really offers an interesting and scientifically valid framework on how we look at dating and relationships and how we make decisions that are related to these areas. So personally, I've walked away from this interview having learned some new ideas that will help with how I make decisions about dating and relationships. And specifically, what I'm talking about here is in a specific situation where maybe you're not entirely sure about the situation. For example, there's a new girl you're with, and you're not entirely sure that you're really into that and you want a relationship with her. With the framework we discussed today, you could look at that with a different perspective, and you'd have better understanding of how your brain's making that decision and whether that's in your best interest or perhaps it's not so much in your interest and it will help you to make those decisions. So that's why I think this is a really cool episode. And um, even though it's a little bit technical and you might have to maybe even like rewind a couple of times to actually get the stuff, it's definitely worth the effort to do that. Something that may help you with this are the references and the links from this show. So to get more information, check out datingskillsreview.com slash dsp62 you'll have the mp3 download of the show and the transcript of the interview as usual but also links to everything we reference in the show including the academic references such as research I'm Angel Donovan and this is the Dating Skills Podcast this is a 14 year ongoing mission to discover the truth about what works in dating, sex and relationships to become a better man Join me as I leave no stone unturned, chase down every expert, role model and mentor with insights to get us to that goal as fast as possible. This show is about bringing you the best of that information so that you can take it in and change your life for the better, step by step, episode by episode. Andrea, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for coming on today.
1: Hello. Thank you for having me.
0: So I wanted to start looking straight at the neuroscience perspective and why you feel that it's got like a valid look at sex and sexuality, things like uh, what kind of research has been done, what kind of tools are used. So kind of just give people a perspective of what this is about, why neuroscience is a subject related to sex and sexuality. I mean, is it all about like MRIs or what kind of research goes on?
1: Um, Well, first of all, um, I wanted to talk about dopamine because lots of people like talking about dopamine. They nickname it like the pleasure chemical. And everyone's kind of really hooked on this like, oh, you need to trigger dopamine. And that's how we receive pleasure and everything. Um, But there's actually some recent research that's been done on dopamine that has kind of illuminated a lot of the mysteries that we had about why dopamine is so powerful? Why do we even care about it? And what is it actually doing? And I think just explaining that right off the bat will kind of illuminate all of these other facets of pleasure and attraction and dating and why it works the way it does. Um, So it was pretty exciting. And it was things that we had hypothesized about, but didn't really know. And now it's kind of been proven. so, So I'd like to talk about that first. So dopamine you know, is this neurotransmitter in the brain, and it has to do with it's related to a lot of things like focus attention movement pleasure and motivation and we used to think it was primarily about pleasure everyone thought dopamine was associated with pleasure primarily Um, but what we've now discovered is it's actually more to do with anticipation of reward so it really has more to do with motivation than anything else when we're talking about this kind of thing with in the reward center of the brain so it's not so much a pleasure it's the anticipation of the pleasure let me explain just really quickly this interesting study. The details aren't important as far as like when it was published or anything. But basically, um, when you're presented with some kind of a reward, let's, let's say even with relationships, you know, you feel like this good feeling, okay? You're with someone.
0: So we could give an example. It's like the first kiss with a girl you've been interested in for a while.
1: Yeah, so let's say you have a kiss, right? And so after you experience that kiss, you experience pleasure. You know, you're happy. You're like, that was cool. I like it. So then the next time you're with this person, And let's say your brains are hooked up to these machines and you're measuring dopamine, hypothetically, you know, this thought experiment. And so you get this pleasure response. So then the next time you're with this girl and you see her coming towards you, that would be like the cue for the kiss. Your brain interprets this cue that the reward is coming. So you actually receive the spike of dopamine before you get the kiss, not after. So right before you receive the reward right before you receive the cue right after the cue right before the reward is when you get the spike of dopamine and so it's like the anticipation
0: right and dopamine is it still like a reward for us it's something we like
1: well we like it because it motivates us to engage in behaviors to get the reward so it kind of pushes us towards the rewarding things and so it's in the reward circuit in the brain is dependent on dopamine if dopamine's not there we're not really compelled to act in any way
0: Right. So I guess what I'm, I'm asking is so this is kind of the order of it. So we have the kiss, right? But before the kiss comes the dopamine. Let's say this is the second kiss. Is there something that comes afterwards that is like a reward for having actually achieved what we were looking for?
1: No, actually it's just before. But once we experience the kiss, then you get like the serotonin, you're happy, you get the oxytocin, brings you closer to that person, you're more bonded. But the dopamine is all about getting us to take those steps in order to get it, like pushes us towards things. And so Why we want the dopamine is because the more dopamine we have, the more compelled we are to engage in things to get the reward, putting us in hyperdrive. So here's the really interesting thing. If you present the cue every time, you're going to get that spike in dopamine right before the kiss every time. But what ends up happening is when scientists took the reward and they only gave it to the person like 50% of the time and they didn't know when it was coming, what do you think happened to the dopamine? It halved. It actually spiked even higher, like crazy ridiculous high. So when you introduce that element of mystery, when you know the reward could come, but we don't know exactly when, but we know we really like it, once you introduce that element of mystery, we are even more motivated to engage in that behavior, which sounds kind of counterintuitive, right? When I first started working as a therapist, we learned these schedules of reinforcement. And when I learned that if I gave the kid an M&M every time he, he's going to do something good, you get this amount of behavior. But then if I only give it to him every other time or every third time and he doesn't know when it's coming, he's even more compelled to act in order to get that, which kind of blew me away. But this explains it now. So when we don't know exactly when the reward is coming, but we can anticipate that it might happen, we are even more compelled to engage in that behavior. The dopamine is even higher. So this is why things like people in Vegas that have designed the gambling, they're like masters at building that anticipation. You think like this next time it could happen, but maybe not but it could, but we don't know. We are even more addicted to behaving in that way in order to get the reward than if we know that every time we push a lover, we're gonna get some money out.
0: Right, well, that's interesting. I'm just thinking kind of over like all the stuff we cover and that tends to fit with a number of things like concepts people talk about. It tends to be um, people who are a bit more mysterious or so a girl you know less about, for instance, is like gonna be more interesting if you think about affairs, right? All these guys having affairs, they don't know the women so well, and they can't predict what's going to happen in the relationship and so on.
1: It's novel. It's interesting. It's that little bit of mystery. You don't know what's going to happen. It's unexpected. All of those things are really, really, really strong triggers for dopamine. Huge.
0: So that kind of explains why people have to work on relationships more, Would basically the dopamine go down over the duration of a relationship because you know what's going to happen more and more and more as you get to know the character and personality and so on.
1: There's a couple of ways that dopamine gets blunted. One is that um, you just have the same thing over and over again, and it's just not any different. You're going to get satiated on it. And also if you can predict when it's going to happen. So it always makes me laugh when you have people in couples counseling and they're like, well, if you want to have more sex, schedule a time like every Thursday at six o'clock. And I'm like, God, that is like the worst advice ever. <laughs> I can't even It's like, okay, it's time for sex now. Are you ready? You know, how boring is that? Um, but the best way to have more sex is to do unexpected things and not schedule it and allow for spontaneity. And that's really the best way because you're going to get more pleasure out of that. Yeah. So this is where I think people that are trying to coach dating and things like that, this is where they've kind of taken these real phenomenon that we've observed and they've kind of slightly misinterpreted it. And sometimes it goes wrong. So if we know that people that are boring or people that are doing expected things are not as exciting as the unexpected, the novel, so the one that ends up happening is like, oh, girls don't like nice guys because they're too predictable. That's how they interpret that. And true, if someone is like falling over themselves to do everything for me and whatever I want they're going to do, I'm not going to be as excited by that person. It kind of turns me off because I'm like, oh, too boring, right? But then there's someone that is more spontaneous and does unexpected things, but maybe they're not hanging on my every word, but they challenge me a little bit. And I like that. It's more exciting. But I think some people misinterpret that as if I treat a girl like crap and I say negative things to her, which is unexpected and different and novel, she'll like me more than if I'm a nice guy. And that's actually wrong. That's like a misinterpretation of that. So you can be unexpected and surprising and novel and clever and funny. Those are all good things.
0: And you can still be nice.
1: And you can still be nice.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Which is pretty cool. Yes. So is dopamine the only thing that motivates our behaviors? So for example, is a girl only going to be attracted based on dopamine? Or is it a lot more complicated than that? And a guy's only going to be interested in a girl based on dopamine? Or do you think there's, there's other things that play a role in the realm of neuroscience?
1: Dopamine is pretty critical, but dopamine is triggered in different ways by every person. So whatever things are personally rewarding to me, if I can anticipate that that person's going to give me that, I'm going to be more attracted to that person. It's not so much that um, if I walk up to anyone and someone gives me a shot of dopamine, which isn't possible, by the way, <laughs> it's, it's not real. Um, but then I'm going to be drawn to that person. But there are certain situations that will make you more inclined to, want to keep being with that person
0: so so when you said that I was thinking it sounds like it's kind of related to belief as well yes so say I don't have any belief in my ability to meet women Mm -hmm. then I'm not going to get any shot of dopamine potentially when I'm talking to them I kind of like no this never works out for me so it's not even on the cards right so am I not getting any shot of dopamine there to kind of incite me to try and do something about it
1: Yeah. When you have these really low expectations and you don't engage in certain situations, you don't put yourself in the path of good things happening because you don't believe they will happen. Guess what? It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It won't ever happen. You have to believe that you have the ability to do these things and attract certain women, but don't misapply that and say, I'm going to be an overconfident douchebag to girls because if I just believe it, it'll happen. You have to be realistic and pay attention to how people are responding to you, but know that there are people, there is someone out there for everybody. I've seen some really unlikely couples in my time, but they're happy together. But if they never would have pursued that, it never would have happened. So I really do think one of the most attractive things really to all women and all men, I think on some level is just confidence in yourself, just being comfortable with who you are. And I don't mean overconfident like being an arrogant jerk. I mean just confident that you have something to offer someone.
0: Yeah, we often, we often talk about this because you're just putting yourself out there, you're putting more out there. I'm not sure what the neurological basis is for this, you know, but like, uh, like for instance, a girl's learning a lot more about you because you're saying more, you're talking more, uh, you're being more charismatic because you're putting yourself out there. Is there kind of like a neurological basis from her perspective, why this works better than someone who's a bit more withdrawn and he's not, not putting so much out there of himself and not so much energy?
1: Well, if we like things that are interesting, if someone is talking to us and they're being genuine, they're really revealing things about themselves that she didn't know or that are not like the average guy, you know, things that are interesting, they're going to be more attracted to that generally based on, you know, individual differences. But let me give you an example. This is actually how I met my boyfriend. No one ever thought that this would happen, but it did. So I had been a science writer for several years and speaking at conferences and whatnot. And he had been a follower of mine on Twitter, but we had never met in person. Um, So then we ended up at the same science conference a couple of years ago. And I was in an after party for the conference. And of course, you know, everyone's wanting to talk to me. And he decided he was going to go up and start talking to me. And he's a programmer. So here I am. Oh, cognitive neuroscientist, public speaker, really popular on social media, all this stuff. And he's this programmer. And no one would have ever thought that if they said, Oh, approach this this girl in this way, he, you know, no one would have believed him. But what I liked about him was that. We started talking about technology and he showed me an app that he built that was really clever and it involved science and tech and all this really cool stuff. And I was like blown away and really impressed by this app that he built. And he kind of wanted me over in that way because he was being genuine. He was showing me stuff that he was excited about. And of course, I was interested in technology as well and science, obviously. But he got really excited about his field. And he was talking to me about it in a really genuine way. And he was being himself. And he really kind of won me over that day. So we like to joke that every dating book probably tells tech guys, don't ever show a girl your app. (laughs) That will never win her over. But with me, it totally did because that's something that I'm interested in. And I liked that he was being himself. He wasn't throwing lines at me. He wasn't like, hey, (laughs) you know, he wasn't being creepy or douchey or anything. He was just being himself. And that was the most attractive thing ever to me. So that's a message out there for guys that think that um, just because they're nerdy programmers doesn't mean they can't get girls. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so what's going on there? Because you get invested in a conversation because you're interested in it. So I guess you're getting some dopamine because of that. This whole dopamine thing, is it kind of like it's acting and it injecting different doses of dopamine on all the time? And you're not often getting a cocaine kind of like dopamine high um this it's like a really extreme situation i guess but uh, a lot of the time it's kind of like bubbling up and down and this is what's motivating us all the time so for instance in this situation you say like the it guy he came across well to you because it was a subject you were interested in so are you getting kind of like a little bit of a dopamine like rush when he brings up this interesting app right and he's talking about it and it sounds cool and everything that gets you more invested in the conversation And you get to know him and it kind of like flows onwards. What I'm trying to get at is why is it that we stick in that conversation afterwards and and with that person? Are we getting some kind of, I understand that oxytocin is kind of like a bonding. So if we're having more conversation with someone.
1: There's a few things, but first with the oxytocin, the longer you interface with something or someone, the more bonded you will be to them. That's just a fact. And this is why like after you have sex with someone, you're more likely to feel Bonded to them, even if you don't really like them that much, you still feel compelled to be with them. So Helen Fisher's this. She's a biological anthropologist, and she she said, and um, she gave this lecture, and she's like, you know, be careful if you don't want to fall in love with someone, don't have sex with them because it just might happen, you know. <laughs> and that's true, you know. So you have a one night stand, you're like, oh, I'm not going to be attracted to this person. I'm just going to sleep with them, and then you find yourself like wanting to be with them more. Well, that's a, a side effect <laughs> that could know, happen.
0: Like out there, I like I say, my experience is that sleeping with someone does make a huge difference. And I don't know if you know anything about it, but sleeping without a condom would make a a bigger difference potentially, because I've heard people talk about that as well, kind of like, I don't know, more chemical transfer. So it'd be interesting to get your perspective, because I kind of see like not using a condom. First of all, it's risky because of the STDs. But second of all, it's risky if you're not interested in a, a really strong bond, like which hasn't been fought through properly. I don't know if there's any biological basis for that at all. It's just an idea.
1: Well, that's actually what I was going to say is that when you think about, let's look at the psychology of that, you know, not even just the neurochemistry, just the psychology. So if we know that dopamine is triggered by mystery and uncertainty and things like that, and now you're having sex without a condom, what are you entering into that picture? It's kind of dangerous, a little bit risky. You could get pregnant, maybe. Maybe he has an STD, maybe not. You know, that's probably not in your mind, but it's a risky behavior. And when you engage in risky behaviors, and if you're the kind of person that enjoys risky things more. So that's another point is that individual differences. Some people are bigger dopamine junkies. Some people aren't. But if you're the kind of person, you're kind of more of a thrill seeker, that kind of thing. If you're engaging in risky sex, bam, you know that's way more exciting than the security of a condom or something like that. And I think that really plays into, it's not so much like, oh, it feels better without a condom. Yeah, sure. Okay, that's probably factors in. But the real thing is that it's more of a risky behavior and you don't even realize that that's why you like it, but it is. Uh Uh-huh.
0: So, I mean, there's a lot of guys who seem to be kind of like, basically, they're addicted to the no condom thing, even if they're having one night stands a lot, right? And I've always been kind of like, wow, that's very rational, right? So, I've always been curious about what would be the basis for it, and it sounds like it's an addiction to dopamine from the risky behavior, which, like, you do it a few times, you really like that. You don't realize it's because it's a little bit risky or whatever.
1: yeah. Yeah, the risk-taking. And that's where um, a lot of the stuff people say they're addicted to sex, they're addicted to porn, they're addicted to not using a condom. Those are not things you can have an addiction to. It's impossible. (laughs) Addiction doesn't work that way. But what you're addicted to is probably the dopamine response. You're addicted to anticipation of reward. That's the more likely, the more plausible explanation. Some people have a higher need for dopamine. Some people have a higher need for novelty. Some people are adrenaline junkies. And that's just just all individually determined. And so when you take someone that they claim they have a sex addiction, it's actually more that they're probably the addictive type of personality where they generally like riskier sex, they probably enjoy riskier sports, things like that, thrill-seeking kinds of things in other areas of their life, other kinds of addictive type behaviors. They're more prone to those kinds of things in general. It's not so much that everything else in my life is a vanilla and boring, except I'm addicted to sex and I can't help it. It's an addiction. Well. No, that's just poor self control because you have this need for the novelty and the, you know, the risk and all these other things.
0: Which is just either a genetic or it's something that you've geared yourself to over time. You're being addicted to this dopamine response. Is that what you're saying behind all of these things, all of these what we call addictions? It's-
1: yeah, it is genetically predetermined. So it's not saying you have no control because you do. You can change you know, a lot of things in your life just by changing your behaviors. Um, and you can find substitutes for the unhealthy behavior that you seem to be addicted to and replace it with something else that's also exciting and novel and different that will give you a dopamine response, but it's something that's healthy. So for me, I'm one of those people that I have a very high need for dopamine Which is why when my boyfriend was telling me about this technology that he'd been building, the reason why I was so interested in that conversation, yeah, I'm interested in technology, but it was that he was teaching me something that I didn't know. I was learning something new. And so he's in a different field, but it's a field I'm interested in. So I'm always learning something new from him. And that is very addictive to me. I love that. I'm addicted to learning new things. That's why science is so awesome because we'll never know all of it. There's always something new to learn, especially the brain. It's such a huge mystery. So for me, I could probably easily fall into really risky, unhealthy behaviors and keep getting that reward response in my brain from that and stay on that path. I and mean, you get stuck on in this really unhealthy pattern of behavior. But for me, I'm actually happy with the healthier types of dopamine-rewarding activities like research and learning and doing new things, learning new skills. I've been to art school. I went to art school between psychology degrees just because I've always been an artist. So I have that need for novelty all the time, but that's dopamine driven. So I have a very high need for dopamine. So, so does someone else maybe that is claiming to be a sex addict. So you replace it with something else and whatever the rewarding activities are, you need to kind of experiment around and find those, but there's, there's always healthy versions of things to substitute in for unhealthy behaviors.
0: Right, and you're saying that's like perfectly that that will work for everyone, like substituting some other kind of dopamine generating. Because one of one of the things uh, I did want to cover was sex addiction, addiction, real or not. And one of the things I understand is that there's a lot of people go to Alcoholics Anonymous, for instance, who also go to Sex Addicts Anonymous. There's a lot of interplay between the different recovery centers, and so well, that makes complete sense from you basically saying well. It's all about dopamine, really, and the way you handle your dopamine. And I kind of always thought I had an addictive personality because, like, when I was a kid, it was alcohol. Then it was caffeine. I don't manage these kind of or chocolate. You know, it's just like whatever it is. I'm kind of like, yeah, I'll have tons of that. And I have friends which are the same way. And then went for this period when it was women for a while. It was actually really kind of difficult to get out of that kind of mindset and now associate it with uh, longer term relationships. Although now that seems to be a lot more e- extreme, right? I, I really run away from the, the, the multiple because I see it destructive in my life. So I don't know what chemical change could take place there. But now basically that I'm driven away from that type of behavior because I see it as negative. So what have I done with chemically? Obviously, like now I have for long-term relationships, I have a bigger like dopamine spike. Somehow I've managed to replace that. Or is there some kind of negative chemical that I've associated with some other experiences that I no longer have issues of addiction for it with?
1: Um, Well, what happens with the dopamine? Let's think of how I can explain this. This is a question that comes up a lot, especially like pornography, porn addiction. I actually just gave a, a talk only on porn addiction. like That was the topic of the talk. And people, and we had this big debate about is it real? Is it an actual addiction? What is it? And it's not an actual addiction. Cocaine is a drug. Porn is not a drug. No matter how you feel about cocaine, like it or not, if someone walks up to you and Injects you by force, you're going to have that response in your brain. Your brain is going to have the chemical response to cocaine. However, we decide what kind of a reward we assign to porn. We decide how rewarding a certain person is or a certain behavior is. When it comes to behavioral stuff, it's just a cue for a stimulus, is what it is. And we assign value to that. So we can be watching porn and we get this big dopamine spike. Or we could be turned off from it. Let's say someone tells you, oh, that porn you just watched, that was a child that was forced into sex trade at age six, and you know that's what you're watching. Well, now suddenly you're not attracted to that anymore. Now you have this big turn-off response to the same exact stimulus. So what does that tell me? You're assigning value to that, so that's not actually a drug. But what happens with dopamine? So when you're playing dopamine on sex and you're kind of interplaying these these different things so for one thing you have the novelty so you have one stimulus and you get turned on by it and then the next time you know you get a spike of dopamine you get you watch it and then you know pleasure but over time you get satiated so the dopamine response gets blunted over time so what do you have to do to get that up well then you have to bump up the novelty okay so now you got to try something different and you keep bumping it up bumping it up bumping it up because you're trying to get the same dopamine response from the same stimulus and it's not going to happen. So you have to keep getting more and more and more crazy and novel and unexpected and pretty soon. And you do it more and more often because you're trying to get this high dopamine response. But now we know that if you get the same reward every single time, it's not as exciting as getting it only sometimes. So the thing with pornography is that you've kind of taken out that element of uncertainty. You've just removed that altogether. So now you've just like cheated yourself out of this really high dopamine spike that you would get with natural relationships because you're not dating a robot where you say it's time for sex, you push a button and she does everything you want. There is that human element of she has control somewhat and it may or may not happen. It may not happen in the way you want or the way you expect, but we like that. That's what we like about human relationships. So with pornographies, you, it's the same exact, you know you're going to get it when you get it and it is predictable. So the only way you can you can bump up the dopamine is by really dialing up the novelty
0: yeah this is interesting we had I don't know if you know uh, a guy called Gary Wilson who did a TEDx expose on the whole internet porn he has a website that helps people to recover
1: yeah I've, I've, I've yeah, watched
0: that yeah. so we had him on the podcast a while back and basically a couple of his assumptions were he's an addiction and he's got his whole kind of like recovery process for people and uh, the two things he was saying is like high-speed internet porn uh, the video stimulates your brain, which is the problem, not the masturbation. That fits with what, what you're saying. It's linked to dopamine is the brain. Um, and he also says a couple of other things. I, I don't know what you'd think about these. Is like, he thinks it impacts your behavior. Like if you get into this process where you're using porn and you're using the video stimulation, which if you think about it, like the video stimulation is it's always different women. Um, so in one aspect, it's novelty. And as I understand it, there's also always, nearly always a progression. Like guys will start watching vanilla sex. Kind of porn and slowly over time they'll need something a bit different and a bit funkier and a bit more fetish and so on and that's how they get eventually into some crazy crazy that's how the porn industry has kind of progressed into more and more fetish and, and so on online and it's got bigger and more diverse basically
1: yeah that's the only variable you have control over is the novelty because now you've taken out uncertainty now that's not giving you more dopamine which it does in real life so the only thing you have to control the only variable is the novelty. So yeah, you have to keep ramping it up even more than you would maybe in real life because you have to in order to get that response.
0: A couple of other things he said is it increases your promiscuity and it reduces your use of condoms. Have you got any perspective on that?
1: I don't know direct evidence of that. So I can't say, yes, it does it by this percentage, but it would make sense to me that that would be a result because you are trying to get that same exciting kind of behavior or that response from behavior going on. So engaging in riskier sex is more exciting. Engaging in, you know, more kinky sex is more exciting, different people. Um, So the other thing that porn does, so you have the one, the dopamine response, but then also you start thinking this becomes normalized to you. You start thinking that this crazy, kinky, really wild fetish sex is normal. That becomes your normal So then you go into a situation with an actual girl, you know, a real live girl, and she's not doing circus acts and doing all kinds of stuff to turn you on. And now you're like, oh, that's not as exciting.
0: You're not getting that dopamine rush because you're used to, well, one, you're used to a different girl every single time because it's porn. And two, you're used to funkier stuff because you've been watching it for a while and you got bored and you moved on. So you're actually reducing your dopamine response to women, like in real life, through that use of porn.
1: Yeah. And that's a real result. But the thing that's different with that from addiction is that if you stop watching porn for a number of months and you just like abstain from all that, you kind of let all your dopamine receptors like reset themselves. Just like everything, just go back to normal levels. And then when you start interacting with real women, now you have a natural sex response. So the ED, yeah.
0: So how long does it take? Really, is it just a few months? And like anyone, say they were doing it for five years. Because I mean, we could also apply this to different areas of your relationships like and so on, right? If you took a break from a relationship and came back to it, would you be more interested in it again?
1: Yeah, you might feel differently about it then because it's not the same thing every single day. Um, And then you take a break from it. Well, now you're without that person completely. Well, now when you get back together with them, now you're kind of looking at it with a new pair of eyes, like for the first time type of thing.
0: If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. The iTunes rank of the show is critical for getting the best guests onto the show. Ranking is largely determined by subscriber count. So more subscribers means better guests. Also, if you've already subscribed, then please leave a rating and review. This also helps increase the iTunes rank. Help me make this podcast the best resource possible for you. To subscribe or rate with one click, go to datingskillsreview.com slash iTunes. This could also, I was just thinking, explain like how some people uh, say you're in a relationship for a while and then you finish with that. Maybe it's you finish it because it's not working for you anymore and you date. You start dating for a while, but you get bored of that dating singles and then you get into a relationship for a period again and like the relationship's more interesting to you again. Whereas like it was kind of like the reason you maybe half of the reason you left in the first place It's because you're changing up. It's just novelty in terms of a different dating life, basically dating lifestyle.
1: Right. Well, here's like the two sides of this whole issue is that when it comes to sex and relationships, it's not just the dopamine and the novelty. It's not just that. We also have this human need for bonding. We have this need to pair with people. And, and really, the older you get, the more you are driven towards that. So yeah, when you're younger, having lots of novel sex, yeah, it's super exciting. But you do hit a point where you just want to feel the comfort of another human being. You do want intimacy. And intimacy is a huge factor in relationships that really has nothing to do with the sex honestly. Really good sex can help with intimacy, sure. They overlap. It's like when you have a Venn diagram, you know, there is a significant overlap, but they aren't the same thing. And so if you only have novelty without the intimacy, you're still going to feel some kind of emptiness from that. So you can't just replace it all with internet sex. You can't replace all of your relationship and intimacy needs with random sex and strangers. You're going to still be left feeling empty, which is going to make you seek out even more and more and more novel things, hoping to kind of like fill that need, but you're never going to quite feel satisfied.
0: Is that because you're missing the oxytocin? What is actually going on there?
1: Yeah. You're missing that intimacy. Yeah. So oxytocin, a, a myth about oxytocin is not actually the cuddle hormone. Everyone loves to call it that. Whenever I, I always say, whenever someone calls it a cuddle hormone, a psychology student kills himself because <laughs> that's not actually what it is. What it does is it's a bonding chemical. So when they've given people oxytocin, they've also noticed an increase in stereotypical behaviors in in-group, out-group kinds of behaviors, acting against hatred against a group um, that's even strengthened with oxytocin. So whatever's going on there, it tends to strengthen that bond with whatever feeling there is. So if you are in an intimate act, it's going to make you more bonded with that person in an intimate fashion. But oxytocin, there's that darker side that isn't as much talked about that. It can strengthen stereotypical behaviors that you don't want. So that's just, I just wanted to put that out there.
0: Right, it deepens whatever.
1: Whatever feelings are there, yeah.
0: Right, whatever feelings, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it deepens those feelings. Uh-huh, okay. All right, well, just before we move on from the porn um, thing, another thing that Gary Wilson talks about is how it shrinks your frontal cortex, thus lowering your willpower and motivation. Is that anything you can relate to? or?
1: Um, I don't have any direct evidence that I've seen on that particular thing. Um, I'm not denying that that's not a phenomenon that happens, but um, you know, the brain is very plastic. It changes all the time. So your brain's probably different right now than it was when we first started talking. And that's just how the brain is. So anytime you have one area of the brain that's overactive and another area that's underactive, you're going to notice some growth changes. Some parts are going to shrink, some parts are going to grow. But that doesn't mean that it's not reversible. It just means that whatever behavior you've been engaging in, this is now how your brain is, but that doesn't mean that it won't change back once you engage in different activity. So the fact that the frontal cortex shrinks Maybe because you're not spending a lot of time, if you're spending all your time looking at porn, you're probably not reading physics (laughs) and you're not reading other kinds of scientific information, you know, things that would grow your frontal cortex. You're not engaging in those. So whenever you don't use a part of your brain, it's probably going to shrink a little bit. You're going to notice a loss in gray matter. But that doesn't mean that once you start abstaining from porn and you start engaging in other activities that are more intellectually stimulating, that that wouldn't come back to normal.
0: Right, right. Oh, great. So another aspect of porn is masturbation and there can often be negative uh, feelings associated with that guilt and so on. And depending on what type of porn, I guess your, your guilt could like get accentuated. Like the more, the more weird the type of porn gets, like you could be feeling more guilt and negative emotions around that. In terms of the neurology of it, like, is the impact of porn on your sexual life going to be much lower if you feel good about it? Like, if you're okay with using porn, if you're okay with masturbation, you have no guilt, like, you're really very open-minded and you consider it a normal behavior. Then, is that going to be better for you than if you you kind of looking at it negatively? Ah, oh, this is something bad in my life. It's something I feel guilty about and I shouldn't be doing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, everyone has different preferences for what they like and what they need, and. Pornography in and of itself is not a bad thing. I want to make that clear. I'm not, I don't want to come across as like anti porn. Actually, one of my good friends has a porn startup here in San Francisco. So I'm not anti porn. The use of porn is causing other problems in your life. If you're feeling guilt and shame and you're depressed and you have ED and you don't have any fulfilling relationships, you're pushing away your spouse, whatever. Well, then it's problematic. But a lot of couples look at porn together. Or they look at it separately and they're both okay with that. Maybe it gives you new ideas on things you can try with your partner. Or it just makes you feel more sexually alive. And those are all good things. Those are all good things. Um, But when it starts becoming problematic to the point where other places in your life are suffering because of that, well, then it's a problem. So porn in and of itself is not bad.
0: Right. I've also heard you, I've read one of your articles, and you've argued that virtual reality sex could be better than real sex. As I understand it, you see it basically, sex and orgasms, most of the kick we get out of it is in the mind rather than the, the physical touch and you call a tactile aspect of it. It's, it's really mostly in the mind. Could you talk a bit more about that? Is it because it's like just linked to these chemicals and that really is all, all it is about? And is it kind of like 80% of the sexual experience is going to be based on our perspective, like the way we're looking at the sexual act? So you were talking about like uh, if, we, if we see it as more risky, for instance, so in a way, we can really influence the experience and, and what we get out of it by the way we're thinking about it. So what we're reading, you know, the little inputs we, we choose to take in really affects the quality of our sexual life, basically.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the mind is really critical to sexual pleasure. You know, if it was just about stimulation and you just had a little button where you push a button in your brain and you experience an orgasm, well, that wouldn't be much fun after a while. That's, you know, that. <laughs> physiological response, who cares? But what we really enjoy is that anticipation. The dopamine is what really motivates us. So how we perceive things and our expectations of things has a really profound impact on our ability to feel pleasure. So if we are visualizing things, if we have really great fantasies, you're building up that dopamine. That's why fantasies are so powerful, is that we can draw it out as long as we want and as unique as we want, and just draw out that dopamine, just draw out that anticipation forever. That's why erotic images are so powerful versus just medical naked images. Well, is it just about looking at someone naked or is it about the anticipation of something that's going to happen, but we don't quite know what? It's a story that's not quite finished. And then we just like have to know how it ends. We're just drawn to that because we don't know. There's that little bit of mystery. Um, even in classical paintings, the reclining nude, when the female was completely nude, yes, it was erotic, but when she had on just like she was completely nude, but a pair of heels or just a pearl necklace or something like that, that was seen as highly more erotic than the completely nude female, just because there's that little bit of the story's not quite done, you know, just that little bit of anticipation of that has to come off or, it's, or should come off or why isn't it off yet, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it's highly more enticing than just the plain nude female. And so that's really kind of all in our mind It's our expectations of that.
0: Which I guess explains all the things like uh, kinky costumes and like lingerie and all, all of these kind of things, which are, they're basically more complicated, more stimulating. There's more to them. In terms of an orgasm, what does that look like? Because if you think about coming again from this perspective, that it's mostly the mind that causes uh, like causes our sexuality and and orgasm, and then of course like people have wet dreams, right? Both men and women can have a wet dream, which has nothing to do with any type of physical stimulation. It's all in the head. So what does neuroscience, when we look at the orgasm through the neuroscience lens, what's going on there?
1: Well, from a physiological perspective, you do feel pleasure from the orgasm and the serotonin and oxytocin. um, And then the dopamine is associated with the anticipation of getting that. So the orgasm itself is pleasurable, but it's really the anticipation of the orgasm. So as far as like an evolutionary perspective, you would want to anticipate engaging in that because it makes you want to have sex in order to procreate or whatnot, just for the the purely biological perspective, but you know obviously we engage in sex not just to procreate, but because we like it. As far as the orgasm itself, yes, it's pleasurable, but for a lot of people the leading up to the orgasm is actually the most pleasurable part. However, we associate the end result with the entire pleasure response. But you've had good and bad sex, right? So you've probably had sex where it was not that great, but you still had an orgasm. And you've probably had sex where it was just absolutely fantastic, and yes, you had an orgasm too. Are those both equal because you had an orgasm in both situations? Or do you rate one of them as a lot more pleasurable than the other?
0: Qualitatively, like, like- both men and women have longer orgasms. And in terms of women, they can have multiple orgasms, right? That's a lot more. Mm -hmm. Men can do it with like some kind of hacks, but as, you know, physiologically, like you basically have to hack it. You can't um, just do that. But qualitatively, and I know you've talked about the prolonged neurological orgasm. I'm wondering if that is like, is that a longer orgasm? Because I know like based on my experience, depending on the the, the mindset, the relationship, for example, when you're in a, like an intimate relationship, which is going very well and you've got a very, you know, deep intimacy, you can have a different type of sex, which like I'll have a much longer orgasm than like say if I had a one night stand, you know, a few years back and like I didn't really know the girl that well and stuff. I'm not likely to have that prolonged like kind of like a minute or whatever it feels like uh-huh. of orgasm, right? Because <laughs> yeah. um, it's a mm-hmm. completely different kind of physical response. I mean, that's the way it feels as well as the, the mind response to it. So I know you've talked a bit about the prolonged neurological orgasm a bit. Could you talk a little bit about like the mechanism behind that to Is there other ways to improve the quality, like the length and the quality of orgasms for both men and women?
1: Yeah. So that's really relating to really that prolonged anticipation, that whole entire sequence of the Q4 response and then the higher spike of dopamine and the mystery and all that anticipation and then leading up to the orgasm. So that's why when we say that foreplay helps us have better sex, well, that's part of it. Is because you're you're drawing out that whole entire process. You know, you're lengthening the story, and you're adding all of these little elements to it that are interesting and fun, and they almost lead to the organs, but then they don't. And then you do something else that almost gets you there, but then you don't. And that kind of behavior is really addictive, and we really like that a lot. So you're going to get a higher pleasure response from that. Just because you're drawing out that anticipation so long, it's like you're hacking the dopamine. You're playing around with it like as long as possible, you know, teasing and whatnot. And it's a lot more pleasurable than just, okay, one night stand, it lasts five minutes. You know, sometimes that is exciting. If you're in a long-term relationship and you have like the five-minute quickie, yeah, that's exciting because that's novel. So now it's a different way, though, that's creating a pleasure response.
0: Right. In a way, you're hacking it in a different way.
1: Right. Yeah, so yeah. if you know all the variables, you know about dopamine and what it does, and, <laughs> and you know about oxytocin, and you know about novelty, and yeah. all these different variables that you can tweak, if you really understand why and how they work, you can kind of take any relationship and make it better. And so as far as like the long, drawn-out neurological orgasm, that's really with playing with that anticipation. And when you do that, you're going to have a longer pleasure response because there was so much buildup.
0: Right. So is that both dopamine and oxytocin are going to spike higher and longer? In your brainstream? Is that what's going on? Or?
1: I'm not sure about higher spiking of oxytocin. It will be there, but I'm not, you know, that's not something where I can...
0: Because often I, I feel like uh, both women and men, like if you have a bigger orgasm, if you have something, you know, like that that's something that's going to bond you more to the person. Mm-hmm. could be just like, I, I guess it could be the novelty because it doesn't happen so often, right? Scarcity. Yeah. Or it could be actually, like as you're saying, oxytocin. Like if there's like a bigger and longer spike of that, potentially you're getting more bonded to that person.
1: Mm-hmm. When you feel this huge pleasure response, and you're just happy, and you're like, wow, that was really great. And you're, you're just lying there, you do feel more drawn to that, you're more bonded with that person. And that in turn is going to make you anticipate the next time with them even more. And so it's like that they interplay off each other. And so that's why, you know, I call it you know, this neurochemical love potion, because it really is. And it could be dangerous, because you could end up getting in a relationship with someone that's not good for you. But because it is so exciting. And you end up getting so attracted to them and attached to them that it's kind of hard to quit because you get addicted to that feeling of just everything is awesome whenever you're with them.
0: And so is this different from a male and a female perspective? So... Often we have this, I guess, stereotype that women are going to be more interested in having a relationship with someone, especially after sex. I know definitely in the dating industry that that's something that's said a lot. If you sleep with a girl, she's far more likely to have a relationship with you. Yeah. From your perspective, what are the differences or is there, are there any between men and women and these kind of motivations?
1: Yeah. So people like to point out the differences between males and females and the way that their brains respond to different things. And yes, male and female brains are different. They're not the same. But I don't think that's as critical when we're talking about sex and dating and things like that. It's not as critical as people like to think. We like to say, oh, men and mm-hmm. women are different. That's why you know, men are from Mars women are from Venus. That's why these things don't work. Right. Um, but really, it's when we draw those kinds of conclusions and we use those as our fallback, it's not really helping us. So, yes, male brains are more responsive to visual images. Females are more responsive to smells, for example. Females are more sensitive to smells than men. Um, That's just a biological fact. There's probably some kind of evolutionary reason for that. Who knows? Um, But it's not really that important when we're talking about dating. when we're talking about relationships and upon first meeting a female and or a guy meeting a girl, a girl meeting a guy, it's more important that you understand about what is going to What does that person find interesting? What do they like personally? Because some women, I have friends that are females that prefer a lot of sexual partners. The poly scene in San Francisco here is is pretty big. Um, So if someone does have a proclivity to go toward, you know, they want poly relationships, move to San Francisco because there's a plenty (laughs) and it's very widely accepted. So move here if you're interested in that, but not everyone is, but not every male is interested in that. I know some guys that really want relationships and they just don't get into one night stands. Um, Some females do. So to make those kinds of stereotypical conclusions, I think is wrong. I think it's a bad idea. So you shouldn't just assume that every girl you meet is going to want to get in a long-term relationship with you right away, because what ends up happening is you have these expectations of people and then you expect everything, everything that they do then is fulfilling that, that expectation. She said, call me. Oh, God, that means she wants to get married next month. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean that. Maybe that means she wants to hang out with you again because she really enjoyed, <laughs> enjoyed the time with you. So just assuming that you have to be standoffish because a girl is going to want to be in a long-term relationship after having sex, you might actually be missing out on a great opportunity Just to get to know someone better, because you're pushing everyone away before they even do anything. It's like you're punishing them for a behavior that you think they're gonna do before they even do it, which is kind of unfair. Yeah,
0: Yeah, so I mean, it's a very stereotypical uh, thing, the whole commitment, uh, phobic guy. One of the things I saw in one of your artists was conditioning and paired association learning. And I, I was wondering how that played. And we've been talking about around, like, basically a whole bunch of sexual behaviors, right, and lifestyles. And I was wondering to what extent you can hack your interests in terms of like I'm attracted to uh, African women or Asian women or, or Caucasian women or one night stand kind of casual sex lifestyle versus deep relationships or maybe swinging or, you know, whatever it is. To what extent do you think that's learned conditioning or basically you've kind of anchored your sexuality to that for the time being and it's very malleable versus it's a more ingrained kind of like preference and something that's more... Uh, fixed for you?
1: Well, here's the thing. It's actually both. <laughs> so nothing is simple. Everything's complicated. It's kind of very nuanced. So when you're talking about paired associations, that's one of the reasons why fetishes develop and why pornography can get so addictive for some people because you're, basically, you're pairing, I'm engaging in this activity and I'm experiencing an orgasm and pleasure. And so now, whenever I engage in that activity, that's going to be exciting for me. And so there can be good and bad ways that, that can work. Good ways is, you engage in activities that you like and they they turn you on and, and maybe you can develop healthy fetishes. That's cool. That's totally fine. Or sometimes you can develop a fetish for things that you shouldn't because they've been paired with sex so many times that now you're like inducing that pleasure response from something that you really shouldn't. Like, I don't know, maybe child pornography or something like that. Um,
0: Is that specifically like one of the pieces of advice often circulates around like having an orgasm in association with that. So is it actually that because you get the biggest spike at the time of orgasm? So if you're pairing, like if you're looking at that image, when that happens, like for instance, I'll give you a very specific example here. When people are talking about anal sex and people getting used to it, They'll often say one of the best ways, a smoother way to do it, because like most people, it's quite a jarring like difference from, you know, standard sex going to moving to anal sex for most people. But if you're interested and you want to like, introduce it to yourself, the easiest way is to have standard sex and then like insert something in the ass while you're doing that, like and have it and specifically having an orgasm. And that's going to like build your comfort with it and your interest in it and motivate you to uh, go more towards that. So does that make sense to you at all? Is there a big deal the orgasm and associating it with things?
1: Maybe even not so much the orgasm in that situation, but it does make sense from a behavioral perspective of if you're in a situation that you are enjoying like sex, regular sex, and it's very pleasurable. Maybe you just had an orgasm, maybe you're about to, but you are enjoying it. Um, that would be the time to introduce something like that because you will then associate it with something that is enjoyable. You're more likely to want to do it because the whole entire act that you're doing is fun and enjoyable, so we're going to add one more element, oh and it's a little novel, but I'm also you know you're more likely than to associates that with something pleasurable as opposed to you know maybe you're a little bit scared of doing it and it's kind of forced upon you out of the blue you're more likely to be a little bit more timid and scared about that It's not going to have as positive a reaction, but yeah, so pairing something with something that's pleasurable is a good way to do that so. Yeah, if someone asked me for advice, that was, that would be exactly what I would say.
0: And so if there's something like kind of going back to hacking this or like something practical, say there's something I don't like about my sexual preferences. Like, uh, for instance, I'm always going for blonde girls. And I'm, maybe it's been 10 years and I'm not sure why I'm just like, you know, always like interested in blonde girls or whatever. But there's something in my sexual preferences I want to hack. Can we consciously hack this and like open ourselves up, for instance, to like, I don't know, (laughs) or, you know, just like hack these sexual preferences, which seem to be ingrained?
1: Well, yeah, absolutely. There are preferences that are somewhat predetermined or ingrained. You know, I have preferences for guys with dark hair. I think I've dated like one guy with blonde hair. It's not that I don't like guys with blonde hair. I just seem to always be drawn towards the darker kind of dark hair, dark eyes, that kind of thing. That's just my personal preference. But that doesn't mean, but let's say that I decide okay, I don't want to go for these guys anymore. Does that mean, it's not that I don't find blonde guys attractive. I do. But then it's like, you have to look for the other elements. So it's, if it's, I'm always after guys with dark hair, I'm always drawn to those. There's other things about the personalities that I also enjoy. I don't go after every guy with dark hair, you know, certain personalities I'm I'm drawn towards. So if you wanted to change, like if you're always dating blondes and you want to, start dating, you know, maybe there's girls with red hair that I'm interested in. You need to kind of focus on what are the personality traits or the other body features that you enjoy and to focus on those that are with someone with red hair or I am actually redhead. I'm not trying. To <laughs> <That> <laughs> okay. <is the> <laughs> I
0: guess like to give it probably a better example, like I'll give you my, my situation many years ago. I'd grown up in a bit of a conservative family, if you if you like, um, conservative values. And I felt I'd been a bit socially programmed and maybe, you know, my, my genetics were also driving me towards one type. Um, And then one day I met met a Japanese girl uh, many years later, but I wasn't attracted to her in any way because she was basically Asian and I had no, it just didn't register. Like, cause I wasn't attracted to Asians at all for whatever reason, but I pushed myself to get to know her better and like one thing led to another. And then that basically opened me up to Asian women in general. And all of a sudden there were lots of attractive Asian women, which I would have completely ignored and not noticed before. Afterwards, I did that with other areas of, of that as well, like it was African women. And it was like, you know, of all these other aspects of my life, which I seem to be closed off to due to hypergenetics or social programming, I managed to open up. And now I feel like, OK, I see the whole world rather than kind of being blind to it. And it seems like it's been through this process of association, conditioning basically over time, which has like gone over the original programming, which said like all of that stuff isn't interesting to you.
1: Yes, we are socially programmed in a lot of ways, and I think that happens in a lot of cases. I actually grew up in a very strict Catholic household, so my experiences were very limited when I was younger. Um, but then, when I, of course, when I got to college, it was like I was seeing the world for the first time because I was then in control of what I sought out and what I spent time with and who I spent time with and different experiences, and, of course, I found that the more I exposed myself to new things, the more things I realized about myself. I never realized that I was interested in A, B, C, and D because I had just never been exposed to them. But then once you are, maybe you find out that you like those things even more than the things that you previously liked just because that was your whole world of experience. You, know, you just never know. Sometimes, some people actually do have a theory of homosexuality, for instance, that the people that tend to seek out new experiences, the people that are more of the novelty seekers, are the people that are more likely to be uh, bisexual. Just because of the nature of if you limit your experiences and you're like, this is how I am and I'm only attracted to females or only attracted to males and that's just all you experience, you'll probably be pretty happy. You're fine. But if you experiment around and try, you maybe you find out that being with women and men is way more exciting than you even imagine just because you've never experienced it. So you just never know. So I would say, so in your example of like the blondes versus other other types of women, just even asking a different woman out on a date or getting to know them, you may find out that you're you're now more attracted to different women because you're experiencing them, whereas you were more kind of mentally closed off from even conceptualizing them in that way.
0: I felt like once I'd had the relationship and I'd, I'd had sex with like an Asian girl, that kind of really changed everything. It seemed to like change everything. All of a sudden, I was seeing these things everywhere. So obviously, I've experienced it in other areas before. So... I, was, I felt like it was the, the pairing explanation fitted that quite well. So thanks for that. Okay, so I understand there's also some mental performance impact uh, that comes from your sexuality. Like one of the studies I was looking at was like, um, if you have more sex, then um, it helps you to develop your brain better. But it also had, uh, it looked at the types of sex. So casual sex, like one night, one night stand kind of sex. Versus an ongoing relationship where you're having you know sex every few days with the same person, have you looked into that at all?
1: Yeah, there was a study several years ago about how having sex makes you smarter. I think um, I actually wrote a piece about that, and, and I was wondering like, well, can virtual sex do the same thing? You know, because if you're just talking about chemicals and things like that, and so yeah, what they found was that so it was mice that engaged in either one night stands or sex with the same partner so to speak. And they found that the mice that were having sex with the unique partners actually had more neurogenesis or the sex that had the, they had sex with more partners. They had more neurogenesis than fewer. And so what it's doing is you're stimulating your brain in all kinds of different ways when you have sex. And it's not just a chemical response. You are actually stimulating neurogenesis, but it's not that just growing new neurons or priming your brain for learning is not going to make you smarter. You actually have to then, once it's primed, engage in the behaviors that are then going to make you smarter, if that makes any sense.
0: Okay. Studying and what have you.
1: Yeah. So when people talk about like taking nootropics and things, because I talk a lot about how to increase your intelligence, which is possible, um, but taking a pill isn't going to do it. What the pills do is they prime your brain for the, like, the most optimal learning state possible, and it's like ready to go. Say so now you've made it ready to go. You've given it like the best possible tools and equipment and drugs. Everything is all ready to go. But you still have to feed it the knowledge. So you still have to engage in the really difficult behaviors of learning new things. And then you will learn them better. And you're going to retain more of it. And then your brain in turn will grow more. Uh, so things like engaging in sex, making you have greater mental performance, I think it's more of a priming your brain for things. And so you can take advantage of that. So when you talk about like hacking your own mental health in that way, um, Knowing that that kind of thing primes your brain. Well, then that sets. Then you set forth to engage in activities that are going to be healthy for your brain because it's all primed and ready to go.
0: Right, right. What well, is it? Interesting. Is it like there's a stereotype that people involved in the polyamory community, swinging and stuff like that, are more intelligent in general? That's a, that's kind of a stereotype. I don't know if you'd think that would potentially yeah. have any link based on on that study <laughs> or not.
1: Yeah, that is a stereotype, and I do study intelligence. And the thing with intelligence that. Is the thing that it bothers me that so many people fall into this uh, belief about intelligence. So they look at IQ scores and they try to determine all of these things that are correlated with IQ. When you talk about IQ, this is like a normalized, standardized distribution of scores of ability. This is over an entire population. So in that population is included people that have mental retardation, people that are cognitively delayed, people that have had injury, you know, these are, so when you're looking at a distribution, the very low ends are also included in that. So when we're talking about comparing IQ scores, like high intelligence, and mostly people are talking about like 120 and above 115 and above the correlations between overall intelligence and and individual things actually breaks apart after about 115. So these things no longer truly correlate, if that makes sense, because what the IQ score does, it distinguishes between people with really low ability and other people that's what it's really good at defining. So when you're looking at, um, oh, overall the people that are engaging in poly relationships are smarter than the average population. Well, people that have severe cognitive delays are probably not engaging in sex with a whole lot of people. So maybe those people would not be included. So you're looking at it's almost like a self-selected sample.
0: So you could, you're saying it could be biased. It's and, yeah, I think know, that's not, a sampling not bias,
1: but. Also, I mean, not to totally hate on that because it, there may be a small effect because people that are poly are probably more novelty-seeking in general. And people that tend to be more novelty-seeking also tend to seek out other kinds of behaviors that are novel and good for your brain, like learning new skills, right. learning music Curiosity, instruments, experiencing basically. art. Yeah. Yes, and, um, and that is one of the factors of personality that is correlated with higher intelligence is that novelty-seeking. And so if you think a lot of people that are poly are probably also novelty-seeking – well, yes, then I can see how that would correlate. But that doesn't mean that engaging in poly behaviors makes you smarter, if that makes sense. <laughs> so it's not a flip reversal. I think those people are self-selecting into that group because that's their nature in general. But it's not that you can take someone who has a low IQ and if you just have sex with a lot of people, you're going to get smarter. That's not really how it works. If that makes sense? Okay. Yeah,
0: yeah, no, that was totally, I was like, (laughs) we shouldn't be telling everyone to run around and have one night stands everywhere just to get intelligent. Yeah,
1: Yeah. that's the problem with correlations is that you notice an effect, like there's a high correlation here, but that doesn't mean it causes it. A lot of it is self-selection in these categories based on other things.
0: So rounding off. Is there anyone besides yourself that you would recommend for advice and insights into this area of life? So dating, sex and relationships in the scientific community, like anyone you've come across, anyone you've read like their stuff and you, you know, you learn stuff from it or anything like that?
1: Yeah, actually a really good friend of mine. He's also a cognitive scientist. His name is uh, Scott Barry Kaufman. Um, He co-wrote a book about, it's called mating intelligence. And he covers like evolutionary psychology and biology and all of these things that relate to Mating behavior, and it's kind of like the anti um, anti game, if that makes any sense. <laughs> okay, so um, that's the
0: game by Neil Strauss. Yeah,
1: yeah, and he was actually on—I uh, forget which talk show he was on—and they kind of posed him as the like anti <laughs> <laughs> game. They had like, here's one way of looking at relationships, and then here's the other. And um, he cites a lot of research in that book on um, studies looking at guy—you know—they have guys walk up to girls in bars, what kinds of things work, what kinds of things don't. They found that humor actually is the best way to attract a woman, being clever and funny.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense to me from my experience. Yeah, yeah.
1: and so they've actually... Like,
0: humor is huge. Yeah,
1: so the, I would recommend that book, and, and him in general. He writes a lot about that kind of stuff.
0: Great, thank you very much for that. And what would be your top three recommendations to help men get better results, better quality of, in this aspect of their life as fast as possible?
1: Um, I guess for one thing, getting really comfortable with yourself. So being really honest about what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, building up your self-confidence, and then taking that and using that as a way to entice women. So instead of trying to be someone that you're not, instead of trying to put on a persona of someone that you emulate, really kind of being comfortable with yourself and embracing the gifts that you do have and presenting that forward, I think is going to be a lot more effective for people. So I would say that. And also just putting yourself out there more. If you never approach a girl at a party and show her your app, you're never going to know if she'll go out with you. <laughs> so just not not closing yourself off to opportunities because you think you can't succeed. I think that's a, probably a bad idea. So just even putting yourself out there and making an attempt because you never know.
0: Yeah, the more tries, the the more times it's going to work out, right. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Andrea. It's been great. You know, thank you for your perspective, like, you know, from the academic world and the scientific world and everything. Um, it's, it's really good to get this kind of contrast to uh, all the other guests we have on. So thank you very much for the, your time today.
1: Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate you asking me and this has been a nice time. Thank you. Yep.
0: Take control of your dating life today. Take one idea or one insight from today's episode and apply it today. Don't wait. Do it today. That's all it takes to change your life, step-by-step, episode-by-episode. Learn more about what I, Angel Donovan, and my team do at DatingSkillsReview.com. How we help men like you take control of their dating lives.